Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to be with you today. So good to see you, um, especially if you're here for the very first time. We hope you feel right at home wherever you are in the world. Um, and I do mean wherever. It's been an incredible last few weeks meeting people from all over, meeting people from Montana and California and the Middle East and Europe and all the places we've been able to connect with people. We are so glad you found us. We are so glad you're here um, and so glad that this experience of Grace Point has been meaningful for you. And um, if you're with us, so if you're with us for the first time, um, yeah, we're just so thrilled you're here. Um, today we're going to continue our series called Let It Be. And what we're exploring in this series are the values that shape our community life, the values that shape how we relate to one another in this community. And today we're going to talk about courage. Um, and we started last week um, getting into our values by talking about sort of the overall value, which is love. And I can promise you, when you commit yourself to love, there end up being lots and lots and lots of opportunities to display courage, to embody and practice courage. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed as I was preparing um, for, for this specific teaching is that our faith tradition is full of heroes. Now, we tend to think of the ones who are mentioned in the book of Hebrews, right? The heroes of the faith, the well-known, the names, the, 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 um, the Joshua's and the David's and the Abraham's and the Samson's and those kind of figures. But actually, some of the people we have considered heroes actually didn't take the most heroic path. Sometimes they took the least courageous path. It doesn't take courage, really, to seek revenge. It doesn't take courage to hate your enemies. It doesn't take courage to live from a scarcity mindset. It doesn't take courage to be xenophobia. So much, all of that actually isn't about courage. That is about giving in to fear and surrendering to fear. Of course, courage isn't the absence of fear, right? A person who's courageous, it doesn't mean that they have no fear. It doesn't mean we often talk about people who are fearless. I don't think that's ever true. I think as human beings, fear is in some ways part of the experience, part of the uncertainty, part of the unknown. But the reality is courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is choosing not to let fear dictate your responses. It's, it's not allowing fear to determine who you are and what you do. And so today, I want to look at some people from the, the stories of Jesus, people that Jesus interacted with, who embodied courage. And these folks aren't people you probably um, have ever heard of simply because they have no names. They're not named in the stories, almost as if they're just sort of, uh, in maybe the writer's mind, just sort of foils and, and part of the plot line to show how uh, the work in ministry and how great Jesus is. But the reality is these people in these stories do some pretty incredible things. They, they display some pretty amazing acts of courage. I want to begin with uh, in a story in Mark chapter 2 where there's this group of friends. We assume usually there's four um, because it mentions four of them, but it doesn't mention actually how many. It's sort of like the whole three wise men, the three magi. It doesn't say there were three. There were just three gifts. In this story, there's Mark chapter 2. Jesus is, uh, it takes place in a town called Capernaum which it says that it was Jesus's home. So Jesus was grew up in Nazareth, but apparently he'd sort of set his ministry home base in Capernaum. And there is a, a crowd. He's in a house teaching, and there's a crowd, and it's so crowded that when these friends, a group of friends show up, and four of them are carrying the mat of a friend of theirs who's paralyzed, the crowd was so thick they could not get through the crowd to get this friend to Jesus. Uh, because I think the assumption is if we can get him to Jesus, Jesus will do something. So since they couldn't get through the crowd, I don't know what your, what your next step would be when you're thinking, okay, I can't get through the crowd. What's the next logical step? For them, the next logical step was going up to the roof and tearing off a section of it and then lowering their friend 
down through the roof in front of Jesus. I mean, he essentially goes from not being able to find a, they can't find a seat, and now they have a front row seat in what Jesus is doing. And the text says that when Jesus saw their faith, the friends who tore off the roof and lowered down their, their buddy, like Jesus, it says when Jesus saw their faith, he pronounced healing on their friend. That in so many ways flies in the face of everything that I was taught growing up, that it's not about other people, it's about you and your faith is what matters. And sure, our faith, our trust, all that stuff matters. But in this story, it was the faith of someone else that Jesus sees that causes him to be moved to respond. It's the courage they had, the, 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 the risk they took to go onto the roof of a house that isn't theirs and you don't know what their insurance premiums are like and you, you don't know any of that and you start tearing it off to get your friend to Jesus. These friends had the courage to cause disruption, to interrupt not only Jesus, like this great teacher, and they didn't let a pesky roof stand in their way. They Essentially, there were obstacles in place for their friend to be fully included and have full access. And what they did is they began removing those obstacles. They had the courage to remove the obstacles so their friend could experience healing with Jesus. There's another story in Mark chapter 5 where this, there's a woman. Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter actually to raise the daughter. She had eventually passed away, but he's on a way to heal or, or bring back a daughter of a synagogue leader, like a, a Jewish church is essentially what a synagogue is, a worship gathering space. Um, the synagogue leader name was Jairus and Jesus is on the way. And as he's going, everybody hears what's happening and a crowd ends up following him. And they're, they end up swarming him. And in one translation of Luke's version of this story, this is Mark 5, but in Luke's version of the story, it says that the crowd was pressing in around Jesus so much that they almost crushed him. And in that crowd, on the edges, on the fringe, on the margins of that crowd, is a woman who had had an issue for 12 years. It was a, it was a physical issue that kept her essentially on the outside of community because this condition she had made her unclean and impure, which means that anyone she can't, would come in contact with would also be, whether it was if they, if they came into her house or she went to their house or she touched, like whatever, her, her uncleanness would have been contagious. And so that means she's been essentially pushed to the margins and cut off from community. And she had been in that situation for 12 years. And the text even goes so far to say that she had been to physician after physician. She had been to specialist after specialist, and nobody could bring healing, and nobody could find a way to, to uh, help her become whole and uh, included again. And when she heard that Jesus was coming through town, she made a decision that if a fraction of the stories told about him are true, that she couldn't pass up the chance to maybe, just maybe, find healing. So she makes her way through the crowd. Again, everybody she touches now is but because she is unclean, everybody she touches, this is a contagious um, state to be in. She makes her way through the crowd, elbowing, moving, and she touches Jesus' cloak. And when she did, she was immediately healed. And Jesus was aware, like he felt it. He was aware something happened. So he stops the crowd and he says, who touched me? And his disciples think, my gosh, this is the most ridiculous question. It would be like standing in, a crowd, like when we used to be able to stand in crowds, we're standing in a crowd on New Year's Eve in Times Square going, 
wow, somebody just, who was it? Who bumped into me? Right? It's like people are packed in. The disciples say, everybody's touching you. How in the world can you figure like one person who that's going to be? But Jesus keeps looking and finally the woman comes forward and she's trembling because she knows what she's done. She knows that in her decision to go seek healing from Jesus, which she's received, that she put, in some ways, the community may think she put them at risk. But something else happens. She comes forward, tells Jesus the story, and Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. Now, I think what's interesting is the way Jesus calls attention to her. He calls attention to her, not to shame her. He's not calling her, he's not looking for her to shame her. He is looking to celebrate her. Because in her act, something happened, an act of trust, an act of courage. What is revealed is that she wasn't contagious, that Jesus was. That Jesus' wholeness and not human impurity was the contagious, the more contagious experience. And I think one of the reasons Jesus often does this, when somebody has been in this sort of category of impurity and he performs a healing, I think one of the reasons he always stops and acknowledges it and brings them up and says, this person is healed, is because perhaps the greatest miracle isn't whether or not somebody had their physical illness reversed. Maybe the greatest miracle is Jesus bringing up somebody and saying, we don't have to be afraid of her. She's been suffering alone and suffering in silence. She belongs in this community. She belongs with her friends. She belongs with her family. She belongs not being held at a distance, but we can embrace her because she is a part of this family, right? Jesus, I think Jesus is performing far more than just a physical healing. I think Jesus is performing a social healing. He's restoring her to the community that had rejected her. He's calling them to embrace her anew. She takes a risk and it's her faith, Jesus says. Your faith has healed you, not Jesus. That's interesting, right? He doesn't say, because of your faith, I've healed you. He actually says, your faith healed you. And he restores her to the community. That's powerful. She has this courage to reach out. And that courage is part of her healing process. Then in Mark chapter 9, and I know I'm showing my bias for the gospel of Mark. It's the earliest gospel, and it's my favorite gospel, um, just because of how it's short and it's enigmatic at times. and It moves quickly. I just love the gospel of Mark. There's a story in Mark chapter 9, um, and it involves another crowd because <laughs> Jesus keeps ending up in crowds. There was a man whose son had been overtaken by an unclean spirit, and the spirit would overpower him and would cause him to have seizures, essentially. And probably today we wouldn't call it an unclean spirit. We would maybe talk about a medical issue that was causing that. But in the ancient world, this is sort of the, the frame of reference they had. And so the, the, the issue he had was actually threatening his life, which makes the community so or, or he's, he's, in the ancient world you don't know what's causing it you think it's an unclean spirit how do you respond as a community well you're afraid and so you keep people at a distance and so this man comes to jesus disciples but they couldn't exercise the spirit they couldn't perform the exorcism so the father and jesus shows up and there's a crowd and there are there's arguing going on and jesus finally calms the crowd and he says what, what's going on here and the father says to jesus and as a parent, I feel this so deeply, like in my bones. He, he says, the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. Show compassion. He's, he's standing there with his kid who's suffering, whose life is in danger, who's also likely because he's considered unclean because of the spirit. He's being 
instead of being pulled closer, he's going to be shoved out of the community. And this father says, if, if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus responds to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. And what makes this unnamed father courageous, what makes him a hero to me, and I think a hero of our tradition, is the way he responds to Jesus. Jesus says, anything is possible for the one who has faith. Listen to what he says back. The text says, actually, he doesn't respond. The text says he cried. It's sort of this, it's not this reserved, polite request. It's this full of emotion and desperation, exclamation. He says, I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Don't you love that? He exclaims, I have faith. Anything's possible for the one who has faith. I have faith, but also I don't. So help my lack of faith. What a beautiful, profound, honest, I and mean, we'll talk about honesty and authenticity and the approach to our faith in a couple weeks, but I could resist sharing this story today because it feels just so relatable. I think if we're all honest, that's where we live our lives. We have faith, but we need help because of our lack of faith. The courage to own that and embrace that and to keep going. The, the courage to say, I don't have all this figured out yet, and I'm not sure how it works, and there's such a part of me that wants to trust, but there's this other part of me that's struggling. There's part of me that has faith that, yes, this, can, this is possible, and there's another part of me that's just worn out, tired, and exhausted, and uh, it's hard to scrape up enough oomph to believe. So help my unbelief. We live in the tension between these two. That's where we find, that's where, that's where our reality is. And, and in my mind, this father pleading for his son, acknowledging the complexity and the difficulty and the, the grayness of everything. He's a hero. And finally, I want to turn to John 6. This story actually is the only story, uh, one of the only stories, not the only, but one of the very few stories that John records that all the other gospels do as well. Um, but I love John's account for a specific detail. And so this is a story uh, from John 6 where we have an account of the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Um, uh, and um, there's another crowd. Jesus tends to be in crowds. And he has been following, this crowd has been following Jesus and his disciples because they had seen Jesus perform these healings, these signs and wonders, and they're interested in what he has to say. And so they're going to go follow, they follow him out. Um, and they end up in a remote spot. And so Jesus asks his disciples, where, where are we going to get enough food to take care of a crowd this size? There, there's, no, there, like, there's, not a, there's not a grocery store around here. How are we going to get enough food to take care of a crowd this size? And the text in John says that Jesus was just kind of seeing what they would say. He already knew what was going to happen. He was just seeing what they would say. And of course, one of the disciples essentially says, um, are, are you serious? Like that would cost more than half a year's wages where how are we supposed to do that and what you have to understand is these folks who are following Jesus what that means is so it was usual um, in the first century in, in Palestine for if you're going to go on a journey uh, like this you're going to follow somebody else somewhere or wherever you would go you would carry a basket of food with provisions for the day uh, because drive-through didn't exist and so you, you want to make sure you have food for the journey and so the fact that you have a crowd of people who are hungry and don't have food means that it's very likely the folks who are following Jesus are people who are food insecure. They're, they're people, I mean, they're not out doing, uh, working their family land, which is very likely in the first century based on the way the economic system was so unjust. It's likely they lost their land. It's likely that they were in great debt. 
it's likely that they were, uh, because I think when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he's not talking about some sort, and we changed it to transgressions or whatever. He's actually talking, I think, about literal debt, because one of the greatest obstacles for to, to eating and, and to sort of even being at a subsistence level for folks in the first century was the economic system that was unjust, that pushed them off their family land, that left them destitute and unable to take care of themselves. So what we have here is a crowd of people who are very likely food insecure. And the disciples know that they don't have the money to, to float this. They don't have the money to make sure everybody gets food. But they discover that there's a youth present and that that youth has a basket of food. And pres- that what that youth has in that basket are five barley loaves and two fish. They all realize, though, that that is woefully insufficient for a a crowd of 5,000 plus people. The surprise in the story is that once the bread is broken and it's beginning to be shared, uh, that everyone ends up getting more than enough, that there's enough food for everybody. And actually, after they pass out the loaves and fishes, uh, that there are leftovers, right? Five barley loaves, two fish, and they feed 5,000 plus people. And there are leftovers, Now, there's a detail in this story that I never really noticed before. So at the end, they pick up 12 basketfuls, the disciples do. And of course, that's symbolic, right? The 12 tribes of Israel with these 12 disciples, Jesus is trying to reconstitute the 12 tribes. There's there's a whole symbolism going on there. But the thing I never noticed is these disciples pick up 12 basketfuls of food, which means they had what? They had a basket, which makes you wonder, did they have a basket of food? that now they're putting leftovers into for, for the journey. Did the disciples have their own baskets of food? And when Jesus invites, like, where are we going to, how are we going to feed them? Like, none of them are going, well, here's my basket. What can you do with this? It's actually this young man, this, we assume it's young man, this youth, this kid, this young person who displays the courage to open up the basket and say, here's what I have. I know it's insufficient. I know it seems like it's not enough but this is everything I have. And if this can be used in some way to feed this crowd, I'm, I'm willing to give it up. This youth embodies courage because they hold their possessions. They hold their lunch with an open hand. And they essentially say, this is what I have. It's not the disciples who display courage in this story. If anything, they demonstrate a lack of vision and a lack of generosity for, hold, with, for holding on to their own baskets. It's this youth, somebody who in the ancient world would not have been uh, viewed in the same way we view kids and youth today. They would have been viewed as if maybe they didn't didn't have like a role in this. And yet here this youth is opening up the basket saying, here's what I have. How can you use it? This youth embodies courage in the same way that this woman crawling through the crowd embodies courage in the same way that these friends who rip off the roof and remove the obstacles and get their friend in front of Jesus displays courage. Like this father displays the courage to say, I I desperately, yes, I have faith, but my goodness, I don't. And so help me have faith. What can we learn about embodying courage from these stories? What does it mean for us as a community to embody courage? And I'll begin with this. I think courage, courage is about risk. Courage is about risk. Risk, by the way, isn't the same thing as recklessness. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, over the years I've heard people say, well, God's telling me, which is a phrase that always makes me just kind of like, ugh, because it's sort of that phrase where, well, if, now that I've said this, if you disagree with me, you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God who told me. So that's not a phrase I use, but I've heard people say, God told me to do this, this, and this. And sometimes it just sounds like, that just seems reckless. 
It's sort of like the tempter saying to Jesus, jump off the temple, I'm sure God will catch you. Right, like that's, that's not courage, that's recklessness at times. But each of these stories that embody courage also embody risk. There are these friends who tear off the roof to get their friend in front of Jesus. This woman who risks her very life um, uh, because who knows how they'll respond to her if they find out she's crawled through the crowd, touching them all, making them all. They, they may stone her, they may, they may respond in anger. So she risks her life to push through the crowd to encounter Jesus who's passing by. The father who courageously acknowledges both his faith and he owns his lack of faith, desperately seeking healing for his son. The youth who could have kept the contents of his basket under wraps, but instead opens it and shares with everybody around him and everybody has enough. There's a risk present in all of that. And I think for us, there will always be risk present when we're embodying courage. Because when we're embodying courage, we find ourselves in the strangest. When we commit to love and embody courage, we find ourselves in some really strange circumstances. I think courage is also about authenticity. And we'll come back to that in a few weeks when um, uh, we talk about um, authenticity and honesty in, in, in terms of our, our faith journey. But today I just want to say this. Each of these stories involves a, a unnamed protagonist living authentically, even when doing so wasn't easy. Like these, these folks who rip off a roof and drop their friend, that's not easy. That's, that's a risk, and, and, but there's a certain amount of, this is, this is what it means for us to live authentically. It's to take care of our friend. This woman who just needs healing and just desperately wants healing. This father who owns up to his faith and lack of faith. This boy who just is honest about what he's got in his basket. And it, it, each of these stories involves a transformative event based on the courage to be honest about who they were and what they believed and how they embodied it. I think there's also something here about the courage to care for yourself. Self-care is vital. Last week, we briefly reflected on Jesus' teaching about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that if we, some, if we can't do, if we don't begin there, if, if compassion and uh, love doesn't begin at home within ourselves, it'll be hard to give it out to other people. And I'm reminded of this unknown woman who's suffering and she seeks out Jesus because she desperately wants to experience healing. Uh, and look, I know the world, when the world around you is filled with demand after demand after demand, it can be easy to take safe care and place it on the back burner and just not focus on it because everybody else needs something and everybody else has demands and everybody else and you may be the only person. I, I get it. But there's something vital and I think something courageous about saying, I'm going to care for my own well-being. And I'm going to do that because ultimately I cannot care for the well-being of the people around me when I'm a wreck. I, I can't, when I'm exhausted, when I have nothing left to give, I, I, I can't, get, you can't draw water out of a dry well. And, and so this idea of self-care, it takes courage to unplug for a day. It takes courage to make an appointment with a therapist. It, it takes courage to say no. I can't do that because I'm overworked, overwhelmed, and exhausted. It's not personal. I just don't have the extra bandwidth for that today. It takes courage. And yet in doing so, we ensure that the well we're drawing from remains full of life-giving water. I, th I think also it takes courage. And courage is often expressed by standing up and standing with another. These friends who low lowered their paralyzed uh, friend through the roof, Matt through the roof, Essentially, they were removing the barriers and uh, 
all the, the obstacles that prevented him from having access and being included in the community. Right. That, that's what they're doing. They're standing up for their friend and they're standing with their friend and they're saying, it's not right that you are being blocked from being fully engaged in this. We're, we're willing to rip off the roof. We're willing to do a little bit of uh, renovation work to make sure that you can have access in, ex in the experience. It's, it's a father pleading in desperation for his son's healing, standing up for his boy in an act of courage. I think this is in part what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. To be a peacemaker is to give your energy and your effort to the work of healing, mending, and bringing a wholeness into the world. And yet it's also peacemakers who are often the ones also being shot at. And I think that's because making peace involves dealing with the injustices of the world. And that is a direct threat to systems and people who benefit from injustice existing in the world. And I think that maybe the most Christian thing you can possibly do is to stand with and stand up for someone who is being uh, who is on the receiving end of injustice. I think these stories show that there, there are injustices happening. People are being this woman who has this illness. She's being pushed out of the community, and instead of being brought in and loved, she's being excluded and marginalized. And Jesus ensures that she's seen and ensures that she's brought in and given access to the community. And then I think that there's this beautiful. Uh, invitation to have the courage to share. Uh, I keep thinking about the courage of that young person, that youth who was willing to give their lunch up so that others could have enough to eat. As a youth, they knew something that we grown-ups actually still struggle with sometimes. And that is a scarcity mentality ultimately creates the very situation it fears. Have you noticed that? That when we operate out of scarcity, that there's only so much and I've got to ensure mine. There's only so much. So I've got to look at you and I've got to look at you and I've got to keep you away. And I've got to make sure that I've got sort of a, a suspicious eye that everybody's out to get my stuff. Um, and what that ultimately does is it creates the exact scenario it's afraid of. I had a great grandmother who, um, when she passed away, we, we, we knew that she was generally you know she had she had, she was comfortable enough to but what we found we found like <laughs> money wrapped up in her freezer and so she she was she had the opportunity to, to live a pretty comfortable life but instead she would argue at the grocery store over a penny being you know shortchanged she would um live essentially in misery not not actually engaging or enjoying her life she lived in misery because she was afraid somebody would find out that she had funds and somebody would want them and because there's only so much to go around, that scarcity mentality keeps people away. We, we push people out for fear that they're going to try to get some of what's ours. And the reality is that that's when you have that mindset, you create that reality. But then the other situation, I think it's exactly the opposite is true, that when we live from a mentality of abundance, it has the power to do something similar, to create a context where everybody has it. And the way I would say a context of enoughness. Right, a context where everybody has access to what they need. When this kid opens up the basket and shares what little bit they have, when we have the courage to share with one another, everybody can have enough. And what everybody having what they need is and what everybody having enough means is that we would have achieved and brought about a world where there's equity, right? where everybody has what they need, where everybody has the access they need where everybody is included and where nobody is shoved out to the margins, where we actually are saying, no, 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 there's room at the table for everyone to have a seat. We don't have to look in suspicion and in fear at other people. When we look at the world and we say, my 
Goodness. I mean, I keep coming back to the stat that our planet can produce enough food right now for 10 billion people. And there are only seven and a half billion of us. And there are far too many people living in food insecurity. What are we doing? What would it look like if we started opening our baskets and saying, gosh, I, what if I commit, what if I commit not to consume all of my resources, but what if I try to put them to some good use in the world so that other people who maybe are experiencing lack, who are experiencing insecurity, who are experiencing not enoughness can have a seat at the table of enoughness. I want to wrap up this week from, with a quote from John Shelby Spong. I've just grown to love his writing so much over the years. Here's what he says. The call of God, the call of the God experienced in Christ is simply a call to be all that each of us is. A call to offer through the being of our humanity, the gift of God to all people by building a world in which everyone can live more fully, love more wastefully, and have the courage to be all that they can be. That is how we live out the presence of God. God is about living, about loving, and about being. The call of Jesus is thus not a call to be religious. It is not a call to escape life's traumas, to find security, to possess peace of mind. All of those things are invitations to a life-contracting life idolatry. The call of God through Jesus is a call to be fully human, to embrace insecurity without protective, building protective fences, to accept the absence of peace of mind as a requirement of humanity. It is to see that God is the experience of life, love, and being who is met at the edges of an expanded humanity. I love those three things, and I've sort of, I'm, I'm going to embrace them as a mantra for my life, I think. Living fully, loving wastefully, and having the courage to be all that we can be. What if we embrace that as a community? What if we decided, we, as a community, we want to, and as individuals that make up this community, we want to live fully, we want to love wastefully without thinking about whether or not, oh, am I, am, I, am, I putting, am I giving love to someone? Am I showing compassion and goodness and generosity to someone who maybe doesn't deserve it? That's not a category. Right? Doesn't deserve it isn't a category. So what if we embrace living fully, loving wastefully? And what if we had the courage to be all that we can be? What if we had the courage to rip off roofs if that's what it takes to, give our, to remove obstacles and give people access? What if we had the courage to elbow through the crowd, taking the risk, seeking wholeness? What if we had the, the courage to admit, I have faith, but you know what? Sometimes I really don't have faith, so help me out with that. What if we had the courage to open up our baskets and say, it's not much, but I, I, I want the world, I, I want the hungry to be fed with what's in this basket. And I think that as we imagine that, as we seek to embody that, in our world, I really do believe that kind of courage, that kind of courage, the courage to seek restoration, the courage to seek healing, the courage to not uh, gossip, the courage to not keep revenge and retaliation going back, the, the courage to actually embody restorative justice with our enemies. That, Grace Point, that could change us, that could change our community, and I really do believe that could change the world. Mm -hmm.